You've said this more than one time so far, and it's 100% true about how important relationship building is in, mm -hmm. in this field and in these types of situations. It is like the number one thing that's going to make you or break you as an educator, period, mm -hmm. point blank. I was that novice teacher you talked about who was hollering. Why are you sleeping? Why are you? Get up. Get up. This is not time to sleep. That was me. That was Cherie Butler. Um, it was until I became uh, trauma informed and took the time to find out. You know, I asked one question. I said, let's just ask, why are you sleeping in class? I was just going off, wasn't even giving the child a voice to share with me. And when that child told me I didn't sleep last night because we there was no rooms in this, there were no rooms in the shelter, and I had to sleep on the park bench. We had to be in the in the park. Mm. Do you know that every time that child slept in my class, I let that child sleep because I said they probably did not get any sleep. But it wasn't until I took the time to ask the question, instead of just poking and prodding and assuming, yes. just take the time to ask, build that relationship with that child. Like you said, that child, if you if they trust you, they're going to tell you everything. Mm -hmm. But you must listen. You must follow up. You don't, don't you're not asking questions just to ask questions. You're Absolutely. asking if they're telling you something that you might need to be followed up with. You need to make sure you follow up. That's how you build that relationship. That kid's going to be able to come to you every single time. And that's what you want in order to Absolutely. alleviate some of these things that we're, that we're seeing. Welcome to Through the Eyes of Trauma, an inner ear agency production, where we engage in discussions regarding the impact that childhood trauma has on education, life, and living. This podcast seeks to help listeners realize the widespread impact of trauma, recognize how it is impacting the students, adults, and families, respond in a way that facilitates healing, and to actively resist re-traumatization. Join us as we tackle the hard conversations, but give tools and strategies to help you cope and begin your journey towards regulation by healing first and educating always. To receive professional development, consulting, and childhood trauma intervention services, please visit us at innerearagency.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-E-A-R-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. Let's get into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Through the Eyes of Trauma with me, Dr. Smith. In today's episode, I'm going to explore a crucial topic that I think is important in the school system, and that is trauma-informed support for special education students. And I wanna introduce my guest today, Ms. Cherie Butler, who is a special education specialist in a large urban school district with expertise in trauma-informed practices. Welcome, Cherie Butler. Thank you, Dr. Smith, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining me. And I wanted you to join us just because I know there is a deep intersection between students exposed to trauma and those who receive special education services. So I wanted to let our listeners know just kind of the intersection that that is and what they can do to support their students. And so our essential question for today is how can trauma-informed strategies be effectively applied to support students with disabilities and what impact do traumatic experiences during developmental years have on academic development? So in this episode, we're going to discuss the impact of especially early traumatic experiences on student academic development and its mirroring within the special education sector. 
So before we get into our conversation, let me give you the data. According to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, up to 60% of students in special education may have experienced high doses of trauma, adverse childhood experiences, or even toxic stress. Now, this intersection of special education needs and trauma emphasizes the importance of trauma-informed practices within this educational context. And real quick, I want to ask you, can you share any experiences or examples from your career where you've witnessed the impact of trauma on students with disabilities? Uh, one student comes to mind, um, and their actual trauma that they experienced was, of course, early childhood. I'm in elementary, and mm -hmm the trauma they were experiencing were home at home and it was because of their disability. Uh, this mm. student did have a disability and the parents at home were not uh, equipped, I'll say, to mm -hmm. support that, that, that student. So of course that student had some, uh, lots of verbal abuse. Um, there was some neglect that was reported for that child. So uh, that particular student does come to my mind. Um, mm -hmm. Some things I noticed about that student, they were very withdrawn, very mm -hmm. not trusting of anyone, students, adults, um, anyone. And the, that student just really resonated with me. It bothered me because the trauma was coming from home because they were um, diagnosed with a disability. And that's understandable because most of the time students who are raised in traumatic and unstable environments, they don't develop properly or they suffer from failure to thrive strictly because they're not given those experiences that those who come from stable homes will have been given. Right. Like those things like people talking to them. And so them being able to to yes. give vocabulary from people having these interactions with them, having that that um, safe, nurturing, buffering relationship with a parent or with a, a adult in their household, or even being read to. You know how we we as educators have been taught that reading to children um, boosts their academic, you know what I'm saying, status, really. And then it, it boosts just their developmental stages and things like that. But if you don't even know how to to interact with your child, especially because they have special needs, and you kind of put them to the side, they're going to experience and have those behaviors to where they fail to thrive, right? Because they don't know Absolutely. what to do. They don't know what to do, and they're not spending time with them. And so... I want to highlight the connection between the traumatic experience and the development of special education instances, because I know there is a lot of intersection between, uh, for example, students who have ADD or ADHD and them being exposed to trauma. And so students present to the classroom daily. Right. And they have these hyperactivity, this hyperactivity going on. They have these behaviors that seem like they're oppositionally defiant. You know, and so teachers and, and diagnosticians put labels on them because they, they show quickly. these things quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. But do they look at mm -hmm. what has this child been exposed to? You know, why is this the behavior? Because behavior is a response. And, and I believe that behavior is a response every single time, every time. And you and have if, to get to the root cause. The teachers want to excuse yes. me. I'm sorry for interrupting you. Mm -hmm. Educators generally want to just get rid of the behavior so they can go on mm -hmm. teaching everybody else without taking Absolutely. the time to see where is this behavior coming from? Because just like you said, behavior is a response. That's the only way they know how to communicate because they don't have those coping skills. They mm -hmm. have a disability. There's some disconnect somewhere within that child. So I think it has been avoided way too long finding out mm -hmm. what the root cause is. Because, okay, you take the child out for a moment, but then when they come back, 
you're going to have that same behavior again mm -hmm. because the real problem hasn't been addressed. And so I think that's why we keep having the same type of issues with uh, students with disabilities and students without disabilities, actually, as well, because we're Absolutely. not getting to the root cause of what that cry is for. What is why are you exhibiting this behavior? We're missing. And I part. really b believe that's why trauma informed education is so needed in schools, because teachers have to be taught how to recognize those things. Right. When a child acts up or when their behavior is something that you wouldn't expect for them to be doing or you don't expect for them to do in your classroom, that, that means that they have unmet needs and broken circles. And so what needs to be taught to them is not ABC one, two, three. It's how do I act in this situation? You know, what has my experience taught me and how can I reframe the narrative and teach them the unmet needs that they have and show them the social skills that they're missing or that they're lacking and then give them those experiences that they don't get at home to help them to build resilience and be able to sit in a classroom to get in a thinking brain so that they can uh, perform academically. But not all schools have that, right? Or even not all schools have special education specialists like yourself who take those things into consideration who look at the root cause, look at the experience or, or the exposures that the student has had and kind of work with them based on what they know about the student. And I know that takes having a relationship with your students because that's the only reason or that's the only way you'll find out their experiences and see what works best for them. Oh, Dr. No, Smith, you done said some words today, sis. You done said some words. I mean, everything that you said, because you will be amazed at how easy the ABC123 comes when those yes. other needs are, have been met. When I'm Absolutely. hungry, when I'm sad, when I'm tired, I'm not learning. I need those needs met first. So, oh my gosh, Absolutely. I applaud you for saying that. That was 100%. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I 100% I I believe that because... From just from experience and not only just from reading the research and, and doing the research, but from experience, if a child is sitting in your classroom and they are in a survival brain, right, they're trying to figure out what I'm going to eat today, where I'm going to sleep. If I go home, what am I going to face? If those are the things that they are thinking about, that part of the brain is activated. That survival part of the brain where they're in fight or flight or freeze has now been activated, which means the academic side has not been activated. They're not able to have language. They're not able to, to think cognitively. You know what I'm saying? They're not able to, to process math questions and all of these things. And the teacher is sitting there upset and frustrated. And I speak from experience. I'm like, all I need you to do is sit here and read this book. I need you to sit here and read this passage. Let's analyze this passage. Let's talk about it. I need you to write this paper. You know, I've given you a topic, a prompt. I need you to think about the prompt and let's go. Let's write this paper about this prompt. And they're sitting there thinking about the man that broke in their house the night before. Trying to, to I'm glad you said them. that because educators, we are in such a hurry to teach our curriculum that we're rushing through the teeks. I got to teach you. I got to teach you. I got to teach you. So why are you not mm -hmm. getting it? Um, why are you taking your time? And I think that's what stresses us out as educators mm -hmm. and does not allow, we don't think we can take that time away from teaching to go over here talk to this student about what's going on because the curriculum tells us we have to be done with this at a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why a lot of uh, students go without because the teachers feel they don't have time to do that because they're so rushed to teach the curriculum. 
Absolutely. And that's why I am a firm believer in heal first, educate always. Regardless of what's going on in your classroom, you are there to educate them the whole entire time, whether it's life skills, whether it's social skills, whether it's etiquette, you know, whether it's how to do things financially when you get older or just telling them about life. You're educating them all the time, regardless of the standards. Right. But in addition to the standards, but the healing first has to come first because like I said, they're not going to be able to get any of the standards that you're trying to throw at them if they're not in a calm state. And that's why mm-hmm. I believe, and I and I know you can speak to this on um, how you operate in your special education classroom, but I believe transitions must include strategies like mindfulness, right? Like um, deep breathing strategies, like having a mm-hmm. little common time or having some type of therapeutic music playing when they're transitioning from one skill to the next or from one uh, content to the next, because that right there brings them back into a calming thinking brain and takes them out of whatever hyperactivity that they're in or whatever um, survival brain they might be in because of the last activity. It kind of gives them a, a level playing field to be able to take in whatever it is that you're trying to put down for them to learn. Right. So I want to talk about just the overlap of trauma and things like ADHD, right? If you are a teacher Mm -hmm. and in your classroom, you see students who are having difficulty concentrating and learning in school. They're easily distracted. They're oftentimes they don't seem to listen to you. You feel like you're speaking to them and they're not listening. They're disorganized. They're hyperactive. They um, show signs of restlessness or even difficulty sleeping where you could notice that they sleep in your classroom because they're not sleeping at home. Those things right there for a a novice educator or for an educator who is not trauma-informed, who does not see behavior through a trauma-informed lens, they will immediately try to get them tested for ADD or ADHD or even oppositional defiance, right? But the the thing is, is, it could clearly stem from trauma because that's what mirrors someone who has been exposed to high doses of trauma or toxic stress in the home. And the only way you'll know the difference is by having a relationship with not only that child, but that family, Right. And being able to see what has this child or what has this family experienced, even if they don't tell you, because a lot of times what goes on in this house stays in this house. Right. So they're not bringing to you what, for the most part, what's going on in, that, in their homes. But what the children will do is sing every time they're going to bring you that information. And it might every be time. in bits and pieces. Right. Where you have to kind of create the story or create the narrative. But from that, that's how you step in as a trauma informed educator and you help them. And so I want to get into some strategies. Um, and as, if these resonate with you, you know, if you have examples, please, you know, interject and, and talk about them. But some strategies for before you go on with the strategy, Dr. Smith, can I, something you yeah. said to me popped up a memory in my brain. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Right. Um, you've said this more than one time so far, and it's 100 percent true about how important relationship building is in, mm-hmm. in this field and in these types of situations. It is like the number one thing that's going to make you or break you as an educator, period, mm-hmm. point blank. I was that novice teacher you talked about who was hollering. Why are you sleeping? Why are you? Get up. Get up. This is not time to sleep. Mm-hmm. That was me. That was Cherie Butler. Um, it was mm-hmm. until I became uh, trauma informed and took the time to find out. You know, I asked one question. I said, let's just ask, why are you sleeping in class? I was just going off, wasn't even giving the child a voice to share with me. And when that child told me, I didn't sleep last night because we 
there was no rooms in this. There were no rooms in the shelter. And I mm-hmm. had to sleep on the park bench. We had to be in the in the park. Mm. Do you know that every time that child slept in my class, I let that child sleep. Because I said they probably did not get any sleep. But it wasn't until I took the time to ask the question, instead of just poking and prodding and assuming, just take the time to ask, build that relationship with that child. Like you said, that child, if if they trust you, they're going to tell you everything. Mm -hmm. But you must listen. You follow up. You're not asking questions just to ask questions. You're asking. If they're telling you something that you might need to be followed up with, you need to make sure you follow up. That's how you build that relationship. That kid's going to be able to come to you every single time. And that's what you want. In order to absolutely alleviate some of these things that we're that we're seeing, absolutely. So I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who I'm going to see her later on today. I, I I love her, but she always says that the number one thing to help a child who's been exposed to high uh, doses of adverse childhood experiences is a nurturing, buffering relationship with a trusted adult. And a lot of times we want the mothers and the fathers to be that trusted adult in in the children's lives. But that's not happening all the time. And so sometimes our number is called. And as the teachers and the person that's closest to them outside of their family members, we got to step up. And so we have to take on this this mindset of being trauma informed and looking at their behavior through a trauma informed lens. And what you said uh, resonated with me because you talked about asking the question. Right. And the question is no longer what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you? What has happened to you for you to sleep like this? What has happened to you for you to be so angry or so upset? A lot of times in in, um, our field, we deal with students who are super, super angry. And it's like, you're nine, you're eight, you're five. You don't have anything to be angry about. You don't have any bills. But we fail to realize that at nine, at eight, at five, some of these children have experienced more adverse experiences than us as adults have experienced in our life. And we expect them to not be angry. Right. Because we think, oh, you just you get everything handed to you because you don't pay bills and you don't have to go out and find your food. But we fail to realize that these experiences that they had are so much more detrimental at times than us paying a bill. You just got me emotional, Dr. Smith, because I was that teacher. Hmm. I was her. That was me. I said, you just got up and brushed your teeth and came to work. What? I mean, came to school. What is wrong with you? That was me. And that simple interaction could have tore a kid up. You know, it just, man, you just, you talked to me when you said that. I apologize, but that just, that was me. No, no. I I was that teacher as well. I remember a student, y'all, and I talk about this student a lot. Like, I still to this day wonder, like, where he is and what's going on with him. But he would come to school and sleep. And I would get so frustrated because he was not doing well academically. Well, how could he? Because he was always asleep. And I would take some books and slam the books on the desk next to him to wake him up. And of course, that would jolt him out of his sleep and he would begin to cry. I mean, cry and scream to where I had to, you know, empty out the classroom, take the uh, kids to my partner teacher and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, you've been at home all this time and you want to sleep in my class. And then when I wake you up, you want to cry and scream, not realizing this boy went through so much at home at night Mm -hmm. to where he did not feel safe enough to let his guards down and go to sleep because he felt like somebody was going to come in his house. He felt like that there were people coming after him and all of these things. But he felt safe enough in my classroom to be like, 
I can let my guard down and I can sleep. And what did I do? With a loud noise, wake him up, which probably signaled the same loud noise that he heard when he his apartment was being broken into for people to sure, come yeah. in and to bother them. Just re-traumatizing him. And and when I started to look at, because I kept feeling like they keep putting all of the kids with issues in my class. Why do they keep putting all of the kids with issues in my class? And I had to stop playing the victim and looking at it's because you can reach them. Because you can create a bond with them. You can create a relationship to where you start finding out things and you start making sure, number one, you're not re-traumatizing these children. You're not triggering these children when they're going through things. But I had to do the research and learn what I was doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And you don't, they don't teach you that in school. When you sign up to be an educator, they don't teach you how to do that. They teach you how to teach them how to read, write, to, to you know, collaborate on projects and those types of things, which is wonderful. But you have to heal first. You got to get to the root of the problem and stop trying to just diagnose kids all the time with these disabilities when their only disability is that no one cared enough to figure out what they've experienced and, and try to help them, give them the tools and strategies that they needed to try to help them. And so going into those tools and strategies, one thing is safety and predictability. We as as trauma-informed educators provide that for children. And that's why they drop their guards down, because we provide a structured and predictable daily routine where we clearly communicate our expectations, our schedules, you know, our transitions, provide them with mindfulness and calming tools during their transitions, and then just reduce anxiety for them, for students, especially those with disabilities. And I think that's a number one strategy for those who um, are supporting special education students, but also teaching them emotional regulation and not just by telling them how to be emotionally regulated, but showing them. We've got to model that emotional regulation for them, right? Such as doing the deep breathing exercises when we're frustrated and letting them know I'm frustrated. Frustration is a valid emotional experience. So when I'm frustrated, like right now, Absolutely. I can I can do some deep breathing exercises. I can practice mindfulness or if I have some sensory tools that I can use, if I need to squeeze a ball ball to get rid of anxiety, I show them that I do that as well. So you can, too, you know, giving them those self-regulation tools and techniques and then helping them to be able to manage themselves when they have heightened emotions and stress. And then a lot of times, especially I've seen this in um, your like your special education classrooms where you give them empowerment and choice. Absolutely. You allow voice, choice them and ownership. voice, choice and ownership. Give them those choices within the classroom and allow the students to have some control over their environment and learning. And I, I want you to speak to that um, because I know a lot of times when you have students in your classroom, how you allow them to even structure the way y'all are about to do a lesson. So I want you to speak mm-hmm. to that. Absolutely. Um, I definitely believe in voice choice and ownership. It gives the children power over their learning because when I pull my students into a small group setting, that's probably the most successful they feel, just to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. And of course, my students have documented disabilities, right? So some type of learning disability, um, comprehension, some some kind of deficit they have. So when we go, um, when they come to my room, they decide, you know, what we're going to do, who's going to lead, because they're leaders in there. A lot of times when they're in their classroom, they don't get to be a leader, you know? Mm, so we yes. have leaders. We have people who take over. Um, they know exactly what to do. Like you said, the pre- uh, predict- predictability. Uh, they know our schedule. They know for five minutes we're going to do some warm-ups. They know this and that. Um, I let them decide 
who's going to read first, who's going to uh, get the flashcards, who's going to read our learning objective. It just gives them a sense of success. Like I said, not, they don't always, yes. children with disabilities do not always experience success. So in my classroom, in my setting, they definitely experience success. And it is so amazing to watch some of these students who, you know, maybe in fourth grade, but they're on a second grade level to, mm-hmm. to see them doing something that they can do. A lot of times something's in front of them. They're like, what? Mm-hmm. But when they're in my room in the special education setting, they're they're successful and they enjoy it. They're like, what time are you coming today? Are you still coming to get me today? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is everything okay? You know, so. One thing that I've noticed is, or that I, I've learned is that there is there are universal needs that, that students have, right? And one of those needs is mastery. They have to have experiences of feeling like they are successful at something for them to build those resilient skills. And so imagine if they didn't have the opportunity to come into your classroom as a special education teacher. And so the only experience of education they have is in a generalized classroom where they feel no sense of mastering. Think about the missed opportunities for resilience that they have. And so it's just really a blessing for them to even be able to be in a in an area or in a situation where they can have those experiences and those feelings of mastery to help them to build resilience. And so I I love that. I love that you allow them to have those experiences in your classroom. And I know special education often involves, you know, personalized learning plans or or IEPs, but how do you adapt trauma-informed strategies to accommodate individual students um, and their needs and then their trauma backgrounds in your special education classroom? I really do genuinely, and I'm not just saying this, I really do think that kind of being an educator, well, when you are a trauma-informed educator, those kind of things just kind of go hand in hand. And lots Mm -hmm. of times educators are doing these trauma-informed practices without even knowing it. It's just things that's in a teacher's nature to be, to ask questions, to, to be kind, give you a choice. You let me know how you want to do. So it's very individualized, just like the plans that we create. Mm -hmm. Um, It just makes it, you have to be more intentional with those yes. things that you're already doing. I'll say that because like I said, most educators already doing trauma, you know, morning meetings. It's just, that's just mm-hmm. neat. You know, when you come into my, if you go to somebody's house, Hey, how are you? How was your day? Mm-hmm. You know, when they come into my room, that's the first thing we do. Let's talk about what's going on with us, you know, and we just mm-hmm. do that. And so I just think um, when planning like IEPs or writing IEPs and goals, it's just a matter of being intentional about where you're going that's to fair. ask a question. What's what happened before that? You know? So I think just for that, for this particular question, intentionality is the key word. Be That's intentional good. with those strategies, where you put them and what strategy you're using because that every child is different. That's good. And so that's another strategy, individual support, right? Developing those supports and tailoring those supports and being intentional, like Cherie said, with the accommodations for each student's unique requirements or their unique experiences, because some things will not work for other students just because of the things that they experience. And like you said, just the nature of being a teacher, a lot of times the initial um, trauma-informed experiences that you give them is what teachers do. The problem is, is the responses are different. 
the response to behavior and the response to actions or to, to different things in classrooms looks different for a trauma-informed educator than it does for just the, the novice teacher or a teacher who, who does not necessarily look at things and behaviors and experiences through a trauma-informed lens. Because we all want to know what, what's going on with our students, right? How are you doing today? But the way they behave, our response to them truly shows if we're trauma-informed or not and if we have had that mindset shift. But also just making sure that we are providing them with trauma-informed classroom practices, right? We have to train educators um, in trauma-informed practices, including understanding that trauma affects academic progress. You know, it affects and, and being able to recognize signs of, of distress and, and even equipping teachers on how to respond appropriately to students' needs. So I know what we say we're going to talk about. I want you to talk uh, real quickly about how do you see or how do you recognize signs of stress or distress in your students? And I know it's easy. I would I say it's easier. I don't know because I've never been a special education teacher, but I feel like you have more of a, a smaller group one-on-one time that you get to have with your students and you kind of have these individual support plans in place so you meet a lot with the parents as opposed to like the regular classroom teacher and so you can kind of figure out what's going on with with a, a student but how do you just on a normal daily basis identify and recognize signs of distress in your students so where you know your spidey senses start going and you know okay it's time for me to to go ahead and implement my trauma-informed responses for this child. Okay, well, uh, good question. There are several things that um, I noticed as a teacher. Some of them, uh, namely, are clinginess. When a student is clinging to me and they have not, they don't usually cling to me, that's um, usually a red flag. Um, that transition time, like you said, not knowing what's going on, that they're having a struggling during transition, that's usually a big key for me. That lack of, everything you've said, Dr. Smith, lack of focus, um, not doing well in school, very shy or withdrawn, you know, those types of things, um, not caring about other people. When they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily doing that beforehand? Right. When they're not, when this is something unique, this is different. Mm -hmm. Those are things that I have noticed. Um, those are most of the things that I have noticed um, about a student and their behavior when I when my spidey senses go off and I say I need to dig mm-hmm. a little deeper. I need to talk to the student. I need to talk to the parent. Those kind of things when they don't mm-hmm. necessarily do them usually. Yes, ma'am. Now, what co- came to mind is there was a time when we worked in the same uh, organization where there was a student who you know, normally was just a happy-go-lucky kid. You know, they had some some struggles and they had some disabilities. But on this one particular day, this student was on 10. And when I say on 10, like a whole wing of a school was destroyed by this student. And it was like we had to be in crisis mode. And it was from from administrators to to you as a special education teacher. And we literally on the spot created a crisis response protocol. And I think that is a strategy that most schools don't really have when it comes to um, special education, education students who have experienced a trauma or adverse childhood experience that we knew nothing about. Right. So we literally knew that something was wrong in the moment. 
And I think that's important for, for schools to develop clear protocols for responding to student crisis, ensuring that their staff can provide support in a manner that promotes safety and emotional healing, not just for that student, but for the students that are watching this, because we had a whole grade level to see this turn up. And we were like, okay, something's wrong, clearly. So what are we going to do? Because we had nothing in place before that time, right? And right. we literally now, in yes. the moment came <laughs> up with a protocol to, you know, doors were closed, learning continued. In the hallway, we we had uh, support from, you know, the district people who came out. And we literally helped this child and gave him the individualized support that he needed. And not only he needed, but his parent needed. You know, she was like, I should have called today. You know, I should have let you know that something was off, but I felt it. But that shows the importance of bridging home and school and being able to to inform the school. You know what? Little extra care is needed today for this student. Mm -hmm. And and I found a letter somewhere on the Internet and it was just a cute little letter. And I had um, a, a counselor that I know send it to her students and to the families at her school. And it just said uh, extra care needed. And, and on that note, extra care needed. It said some things may go on at home that are definitely going to try this student or has the student feeling a certain type of way today. And I don't necessarily need to know the what, but I just need to know that today you as the, the counselor, the teachers, the administrators must deal with this child with an extra level of care. And she sent that home and said, if you want to email me, you know, specifics, you can. But if not, just email me and say extra care is needed. And she said the parent, she said the response from the parents was was just she said she had such an overwhelming response from parents just thanking her for for being that aware, you know, that sometimes a kid is not on their on their best behavior today or not feeling their best. So stop expecting them to have all of these things today, to have it all together emotionally and socially and even academically. Maybe today, can you let them make it? They don't have their homework. But last night we walked around the whole city because we couldn't find a room in the shelter and we had to walk around so that we weren't sitting still or idle somewhere. And so he doesn't have homework. You know, he may be extra tired. Uh, just a little extra care is needed. And so that's why I think crisis response protocols must be in place um, for students in order to have um, a positive trauma-informed environment, especially for our special needs uh, students. Protocol is definitely ne- necessary. Like you said, uh, these students come to us with trauma. And the early mm-hmm. trauma, like you said, they're so, it's so their brains are still developing, right? Yes. Their brains, when they're that, this young. So when they have had trauma enter their brains at this early age, it takes a longer time for those things to kind of go mm-hmm. out of there. So guess what mm-hmm. cannot come in? Coping skills. Um, right. Thoughts, feelings, you know, what we think is normal. They can't do those types of things. So when we have a crisis situation, when we're dealing with a student who has that type of background, you have got to be, well, thank goodness that the campus had at least the knowledge and the know-how that you could tell that we have been trauma-informed, uh, mm-hmm. trauma, trauma-informed practices, that we were informed because we were able to make those type of decisions on the fly. We know the mm-hmm. background. We have built some type of relationship with that family, right? Mm-hmm. So we can make a phone call 
But that's why it's so important that all schools adapt or adopt some type of trauma-informed practice, mm-hmm. professional development, because like you and me, the novice teacher who was just think something's wrong, didn't have that lens. to It changes you immensely mm-hmm. when you have that, a different lens to look through. It changes you. And if it doesn't, something's wrong <laughs> if it does Absolutely. not change you. Absolutely. Because these kids have, like you said, experienced so much more trauma at six, seven, eight, that we haven't experienced as adults. They have mm-hmm. no coping skills. So, so important for these campuses, the administrators to provide educators because we're dealing, we're seeing it more often. Mm-hmm. We're seeing kids with trauma in our yeah. campuses and our classrooms much more often. And I do think that they are seeing it, uh, which is why we have so many trauma informed professional development. That, Trainings, yes, there's more. You see it more and more because I think they're finally seeing that the need is there. And -hmm. if we're going to make an impact and help these kids while they're kids so they could still grow up to be productive members of society, it starts here because they're not always going to get it at home. We have to do that for them. Absolutely. And I think that's another strategy, just having those trauma informed professional development events and experiences for teachers so that they can be provided with ongoing training because it doesn't just stop with one training. Right. They need that ongoing training and support for staff members on just the principles of trauma informed care to help ensure that there's a consistent and supportive approach throughout the whole school. It just it can't just start and stop with the teacher of record. Everyone in the building has to be trauma informed from the cafeteria yes. staff to the, the PE yes. coach, to the, to the janitorial staff. Everyone has to be trauma informed because everybody has an experience with the child and they're exposed to the child. And so they, they're able in a situation where they can respond to how the child res, um, is behaving. And the response is key. If you are in a situation where you're responding to a child's behavior and you're not trauma informed, you are setting your school and yourself up to re-traumatize that child and make the situation a lot worse than it could have been. We're in a situation as trauma informed educators to kind of be able to 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 stifle the big blowups, right? Because we're giving them the, right. that time, that calming space. We're giving them mm-hmm. those those calming um, vocal tones that when we're talking to them in the prosody of voice, we're giving them the space for them to, to come down after they're heightened, right? Or giving them the opportunity to have mindfulness. Or a lot of times, one of our go-to strategies, if the child is, is going off in a room and turn on, I just turn on that therapeutic calm music and literally within seconds, maybe 10 seconds that you can see the face change, the, the tense body posture escalation is happening mm-hmm. right in front of your eyes. But if you are a person who responds and what's wrong with you, I know you didn't touch my stuff. I, all of those things, you are immediately heightening the situation as opposed to diffusing the situation. But training and development and, and parent and caregiving involvement and support helps those things. And so before we end, I want you, in your view, how can educators and support staff, so those, those um, the janitorial staff, the, the support staff in the front office, the cafeteria staff, how can they be supported in, in your special education settings to identify signs of trauma in students? And then what are some best practices for approaching these students who may have experienced trauma without exacerbating their distress? Well, it starts with 
like you said, every person needs to be trained because the students are not walking around with a sign in front of them that says, I have a disability or I'm angry or I'm sad. So we need training. And just overall, every interaction anybody has with the students should be positive. You should have something positive to say. You should have your voice should be positive. Everything should be positive. Your words, your actions approach every student positive because you don't know. Yes. And if you take that time that we said millions of times today on this podcast, we have said relationships. Every staff member, these kids are not just Miss Butler's kids. They're not Dr. Smith's kids. These are our kids. So I should know something about, if I don't know, if I don't know your name, you guess what you are. Hey, pretty girl. Hey, beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, you just say, you might not ever hear that they're pretty. So you just mm-hmm. have to want inside of you. Remember your why. Why am I here? Why? Did I choose to be in this field, in this space? Because when you know that and the kids is the top of your list, why I'm here to make a difference in a child's child's life, it changes you. It changes Mm -hmm. you. It really does. And Mm -hmm. I say that personally because I prayed to be a teacher. Let me just go here and go here real quick. I don't know how much time we have. I prayed to be a teacher. I said, Lord, I want to be a second grade reading teacher. And guess what Mm -hmm. the Lord gave me? Second Second grade grade reading. reading. Now, I didn't say where I wanted to be to the Lord. <laughs> so now, but guess where he put me, where I need to be. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I was not specific in that prayer. And I was crying every day because it was tough. It was mm. tough. But when I changed my mind, I said, Sheree, this is what you prayed for. You treat this mm. job, this experience, this school, this classroom as the answered prayer that it is. This mm. was an answered prayer. And when I changed my mindset to, to reflect that, my whole teaching career changed. So you have to want it inside of you. You can't be be nice uh, to kids just because you don't need to be here. So and and I'm going to go a step further. You are an answer to prayer to a principal's prayer. You are the answer to a parent's prayer for them to have a teacher like you. You know what I'm saying? That their child is exposed to. So although, you know, your prayers were answered, you were also the answer to someone else's prayer. Because think about the the teacher they could have had that, that didn't look at them like I could be the only positivity that they see today. I have to, even though I'm crying at night when I come in here, I'm coming with a smile. I'm calling them pretty girl. I'm looking at them through a trauma informed lens and understanding that my experience is not their experience. So whatever their experience is, I'm going to be that support system for them to help them through that. And so I know that your prayers were answered, but I'm telling you, you were the answer to a lot of people's prayers as well. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the rest of your question you asked. Did I answer everything? <laughs> yes. And with that, I leave you with the through the eyes of trauma takeaways. Number one, understand the intersection. Gain insights into the intersection of trauma and special education and why a trauma-informed approach is essential. Number two, Use practical strategies. Discover actionable trauma-informed strategies that empower students with disabilities, like some of the ones that we discussed here today. And number three, use Sharice's expertise. Learn from Sheree Butler's experiences and her successes in trauma-informed special education. And number four, heal first, educate always. Recognize that healing from trauma must come first and education should be a source of support and growth. Thank you so much, Sheree, for sharing your success stories, your valuable insights and the best practices for your career in special education. We really appreciate you being here today. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And with that, I will say goodbye to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.